You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So I turned 42 this year, and I've learned a few things. There's enough road in the rearview mirror, so here's a couple of them. One, I've learned that I can't eat like I used to eat without paying the penalty. I remember when I was in high school, me and six of my friends would load up in my 1994 Honda Civic, six of us, Honda Civic. We would take the 60-mile trek to Sharon, Pennsylvania, to where there was the one and only Quaker Steak in Lube, where they had $7.99 all-you-can-eat wing night, and 16-year-old Brandon Marshall pounded down 54 chicken wings one time. That's not an applause. That's shame. I'm confessing. I've learned I cannot do that anymore. I've also learned something about gray hairs. Do you know that you have gray hairs that are conspiring against you? Some of you, you students don't know this yet, but here's the deal. When you pluck out a gray hair, it sends in reinforcements. You know that? I did that the other day, and like four more came back to replace it. And I was like, what is going on? So learned the thing about that. On a serious note, though, um, I have learned a little bit about just the course of, of my life. Um, here's something I've picked up, and I wonder if you're the same way. The course of your life will probably be shamed, shaped, sorry, will be shaped by what amazes you most. The course of your life will probably be shaped by what amazes you the most. And where we're going to be this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians like we've been for the last month, and you're going to get a glimpse of something for Paul. He has never gotten over the gospel. He is still blown away. The kind of things in your life that make you go, ah, what? Don't you wish you had more moments like that? More moments that just take your breath away and just make you stand back and go, I don't believe this. I can look back in in my life since Jesus really got a hold of my heart and the ebbs and flows of amazement. There's times when the gospel grows stale for me, and those are times where nothing seems to go right. And there's times where the gospel is profoundly amazing to me, and isn't it interesting how the rest of life just kind of falls in line when you're amazed by the gospel? Now, I'm normally not one to give titles to sermons. Um, I think it's cheesy. That's just kind of my take on things. But this is one where I'll make an exception. If you had to put a title over Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, where we're going to be in just a second, I would title this, The Privilege to Proclaim. Because that's what Paul is driving at. So Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 1. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there. We'll get there in just a second few bits of context before we get going, just to kind of orient us and get us in the ballpark. Everything that Paul is going to say is one giant interruption. I love this about Paul. He does this all over his letter to the Ephesians. He's going to start out with one phrase, then he's going to interrupt himself for 13 verses, and we won't get back to the main flow of thought until next week. So I just need you to know this. It's a giant interruption. He's got something he wants us to see. Second thing you need to know about this text before we get to it 
is it breaks neatly into two halves. And so if you're a note-taking type, the first half has to do with the word mystery. You're going to see this come up a lot. The mystery of the gospel that makes him just go, oh, I don't get it. The second half has to do with the ministry of the gospel. So mystery is the first half, and then ministry is the second half. Third thing about this text that I want you to see is Paul is going to get racial. Hot button issue in the first century church just as much as it is today. In fact, probably more so back then. Two ethnic groups that were trying to come together, Jews and Gentiles, those that were ethnically and religiously Jewish who had come to faith in Christ, so the Christians, but then people who probably, like most of us in this room, are ethnically not Jewish, were Gentiles. That's a catch-all term for anyone who is not born Jewish. And Paul's going to talk about how these two groups of people can come together in the gospel. Last thing, this whole section is bookended with Paul in prison. You're going to see him talk about that. Here's the deal. Paul's in prison because he preached the gospel. And the Ephesians, this church who loves him deeply, are concerned about him. And Paul is concerned that they're concerned. And so he writes to tell them, don't be concerned. I am so much better than okay. So, with that, Ephesians 3, verse 1. Here's the first phrase, and then the interruption. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So we're going to hang here for just a minute. Paul's writing this letter from prison. How'd he get here? Let's back up and do a little bit of history, because this story needs to be told. So about four years prior to the writing of Ephesians... Paul was preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. He had the opportunity to preach to a large crowd near the temple. Now, we need to remember that Paul is ethnically Jewish. And preaching the gospel to his own people was his main ambition in life. Elsewhere, he writes to the Romans, he says, Would that I were accursed for the sake of my people. Which is basically like him saying, Look, if it were possible, send me to hell and save them. That's a pretty evangelistic heart, right? Anybody in here willing to say that for your people? That's Paul's heart. So Paul's preaching at the temple. He's preaching and he's pouring out his heart and he thinks back and he starts with his story. This is in Acts chapter 22. You can write this. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. Acts chapter 2, verse 3. Here's how he starts his sermon. He says, I'm a Jew born of Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, master rabbi, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. Well, how zealous, Paul? Here's how zealous. I persecuted this way, meaning Christians. I persecuted them to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. This is Paul, B.C. This is Paul, before Jesus, a very sober perspective of himself. Then, what happens? Verse 6, As I was out on my way and drew near Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. So Jesus just happens to him, like a meteor, this is Paul's moment in time where God got a hold of his heart. 
And then, if you slide down a couple more verses, Jesus gives him this mission. Verse 21, it says, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you to the Gentiles. So quick little side story. We're going to come back to the thread in a minute. Every good gospel story, who I was before Christ, how I met Jesus, and what he's doing in my life right now. Those three parts. Who I was before Jesus, how I met him, and what he's doing in my life right now. So how do his people, his family, respond to this sermon, the story that Paul's sharing? Up to this word, what word? Gentiles. Messiah, Jesus, sent me to Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribune, that's the Roman, ordered him to be brought to the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting at him like this. Okay, I've preached some like slightly controversial sermons, but like nothing like that. (laughs) This is a riot. And this pushes Paul into a legal battle where, long story short, he's forced to leverage his Roman citizenship to get justice. And he ping-pongs around the Roman court system for a little while until he eventually ends up in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. So while he's waiting for trial at Casa de Caesar, during the day he's free to move around this house that he's been assigned to live in. And at night, he's chained to a Roman guard so that he doesn't escape. And as his Roman chain rattles, his mind goes back to the church in Ephesus. And so he writes them a letter, what we would call Ephesians. That's how we got where we are. So that's how Paul became a Roman prisoner under house arrest. Now, why do I bring all that up? Paul whose people have turned against him and who now sits unjustly under house arrest, Paul refuses to define himself as a victim of religious persecution or of political oppression. Instead, how does Paul describe himself in verse 1 of chapter 3? A prisoner of who? Christ Jesus. That is not a small thing. Why is that so important? Glad you asked. If you see yourself as a victim of the world, you will never find your purpose for God. If you see yourself as a victim of the world, you will never live out or find your purpose for God. This is Paul going, you think I'm here because of religious persecution? You think I'm here because of Caesar? My God is not that small. (laughs) He could have looked down at the chain around his wrist and go, why is this happening to me? But instead, he looks down at the chain on his wrist and he says, God, how can you use me? I know we're one verse in, but let me push this further. Many Christians look at our world today. We hang our heads in a shoegazing kind of sorrow and we say, ugh, the world is off the rails. Our country has lost its way. It's all over. We've got marches and demonstrations and protests. I'm worried, I'm afraid, and I don't like this. And at the risk of massive oversimplification, here's what I think is a gospel response to those very real fears. Okay, now what? I think we need to get over being surprised and get on with the work of the gospel. I'm very genuinely worried that we become so spiritually nearsighted that we easily confuse our present circumstances 
with God's ultimate purposes. It is a thin, small, very anemic view of God that limits his movement to what I can see. But it is a strong, robust, deep, rich view of God that sees past my circumstances to his purposes. So what does this prisoner of Christ have to say? Back to the text. Warning, Paul is going to stumble through some incredibly complex few phrases before he gets to his point. Quick little Bible study tip before we pick this back up. One thing you want to watch for whenever you're reading scripture, watch for words that are repeated. Okay? When the author is repeating a word, circle it, underline it, highlight it. That's usually a clue to what's going on. So here it is, verse 1 again. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known by me, or to me, by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. One word showed up three times. Did you catch it? Mystery. Good. Now, in English, mystery has like a weird, like dark connotation to it. Like you think about mystery novels and like Sherlock Holmes, like dimly lit Victorian streets with like a crow perched on a lamppost. Something obscured, something hidden, something dark, and something foreboding. In Greek, in Paul's day, that word mystery meant something else. It means something that was hidden, was unknown, but has now been blown wide open so that you sit there and go, oh, what? That's the mystery, something I am amazed by, something you can't quite grasp, you can't fully understand, so you sit there and go, ah. So what's he say about this mystery? He says in verse 5, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Just means our grandfathers didn't get this yet. They were still at the preamble, at the appetizer, but it has now been revealed by the Spirit. Well, what is this mystery? Paul, we want in. Why it's got you so silently stupefied? And then in verse 6, he lets it fly. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Gentiles in Christ are three things. Fellow heirs, what's that mean? It means we're part of God's household. We're part of God's body now because of what Christ has done. We're part, we're part of the same body, diverse in all the ways that don't matter, united in the one way that does, Christ alone, partakers in the promise. What he means is the entire Old Testament leads right up to Christ. And if you're a Christian, you get all that. Now I know how those three phrases kind of land on our modern ears, because here we are in like 2023, and we're going, okay, Paul, you are clearly worked up. You are very excited about something. I've got like Jews and Gentiles and promises and covenants and stuff, and I'm like, but I am still falling a little flat. I'm not quite there, Paul. Sounds racial. I don't know what this means. Help me out a little bit. Um, the message, which is an interpretation of the Bible that I sometimes read when I'm studying, puts it this way. I just want to read it to you. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God, 
And those who have heard of him all their lives, what I'd be called outsiders and insiders, they stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, the same help, same promises in Christ Jesus. The message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. I don't think we can overstate how monumental of an idea that is. We think we understand rivalry and we think we understand contention. This goes way beyond like Browns fans and Steelers fans sharing the same nacho bowl. This goes like way beyond Ohio State and that team up north tailgating together. This goes way beyond don't tread on me flag guy and bumper sticker Biden guy, okay? If those guys hung out, maybe that would be weird, but that's not where near what Paul is talking about here, the idea that Gentiles, most of us, people who for centuries were considered excluded, ethnically further from God, strangers to the promise, nothing going for us, but because of Christ, we now have the same Savior as God's people. Put plainly, the gospel is the great leveler. Another way to put it, we say this around here from time to time, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one comes with any advantages. Why? Because we are all equally disadvantaged. We're all sinners. We're all equally jacked up. And the only people who don't get Jesus are the people who think they already deserve him. (laughs) There's this scene in the life of Jesus that talks about this. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. It's a long one. I just want to read it to you. So just sit back and and imagine this. Close your eyes if you want to. Just don't drift off to sleep, okay? One of the Pharisees asked Jesus. The Pharisees are the super religious types. They memorized all their Bible verses. They dress right. They vote right. They act right. Everyone's super impressed with who these guys are. Blah, blah, blah. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with them. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, guess what she does after dark? You're probably right. When she learned that he, that is Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw all this. He said to himself, grumble, 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 if this man were a prophet, he would know who this is and what sort of woman she is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Don't you love when religious people talk that way to themselves? And Jesus answering him, which I think is a great word. He didn't ask a question, right? But Jesus answers him. (laughs) Jesus answering him says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, say it, teacher. And then here comes the parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. One One owed 500 denarii, that's two years wages. Another owed 50, that's about two months wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, 
He said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not hard to see why this kind of stuff gets him crucified, is it? Here's the point. Jesus obliterates prerequisites. When we add to the gospel, we neuter the gospel. If it's Jesus plus anything, I get nothing. Jesus forgives anyone who repents and trusts in him. No more insiders, outsiders. No more us and them. No more good guys, bad guys. Because the gospel says, you're all bad. <laughs> We're all them. We're all outside. So then how does the good, how does the bad become good? How does the them become us? How does the outsiders come in? Answer, Ephesians 3, 6, in Christ, through the gospel. That's grace, and it's amazing, and it makes Paul go, oh. Heaven will probably be populated by people who you might actually be surprised to see there. <laughs> Thinking about this kind of grace, one of my favorite authors, uh, Brennan Manning, writes this in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Again, just listen to this. It's so powerful. Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment than to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. I'll see the businessman besieged in debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. I'll see the insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. I'll see the sexually abused teen who's molested by his father, now selling his body on the street, who, as he falls asleep each night after his last trick, whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask. And then the voice says, because they have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are, there we are, the multitude who tried so hard to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, bested by trials, wearing the blood garments of life's tribulations and through it all clung to faith. My friends, if this is not good news for you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. The gospel is the great leveler. And it makes Paul just go, what? <laughs> and the word has to be mystery. I don't get it. I don't understand that. How could God actually love me? Why? Doesn't he know? He knows. <laughs> he knows. And he loves you so much. So having talked about the mystery, Paul's going to shift gears a little bit. Now he wants to talk about what all this means. There's verses 1 through 6, and now he's going to get into verse 7. Here we go. Of this gospel... 
This gospel, this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all saints, again, such a sober self-perspective, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, and now watch this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let's stop and catch our breath for a bit. What does that last phrase mean? Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What Paul's talking about in this section is two things. He's talking about how God's grace is revealed, and then he's talking about to whom he is revealing it. First, God reveals his wisdom and his grace, who he is, through the church. Sit with that for a second. We are the words that tell the story of God. That's a staggering thought, isn't it? Like, you're not just coming to church this morning, or you're not just watching online. You are one of the mechanisms, one of the platforms by which God introduces people to himself. How we act, how we love each other, how we worship We'll come back to that more in just a second. Second part of this, though, is, well, to whom is he revealing it? And we might think, well, a lost world, spiritually curious people, friends and neighbors. And yes, that's part of it. But that last phrase is what catches us by surprise. The chief observers of our activity are rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What is that? <laughs> that phrase, rulers and authorities in heavenly places, means, and this sounds a little bit weird, but just walk with me, that means angels. So let's put all this together. God does not use angels to show himself to the church. Here's the weird thing. God uses the church to show himself to angels. Heavenly beings learn something about God when they see a sinner saved. Angels learn something about who God is when they see unity where it's least expected. Angels learn something about God by watching us. One commentator put it like this, watching the church is graduate school for angels. Or another, the church becomes a mirror through which the bright ones of heaven see the glory of God. What a staggering, fantastic thought. To think that when we gather in worship, when we bow to pray, when we sing to God, when we visit the sick, when we live on mission, when we give to kingdom purposes, angels who perpetually dwell in the white-hot presence of God are peering over the edges of clouds. I don't know if that's how that works, but I'm going to go with it. On the off chance that they might catch a glimpse on what we are doing, why we are doing it, so they can learn about the God they worship. How does that impact your view of church? Like, to know that we, this morning, right now, are instructing angels. That you, right now, are being observed by curious angels who are learning about God by watching us. Kind of makes you rethink this whole church thing a little bit, doesn't it? But Paul goes on, verse 11, last three verses. 
This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we now have boldness and access. How? With timidity? With fear? No, with confidence. How? Through our faith in him. So, Ephesian church, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. All of this redemption brings two things, boldness and confident access to God. What does that mean? Back to the woman at Jesus' feet for just a second. This means that I can come to Jesus with all my junk, and I don't have to worry about how he's going to respond. I acknowledge my sin. I accept his free gift of salvation so I don't have to be afraid anymore. And it's that beautiful truth that frees Paul to say, don't worry about me. He says, yeah, I'm suffering. I'm in prison. We'll see how this is going to go. Oh, but it is so, 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 so worth it. (laughs) Now, what's all this mean? Okay, here we are, North Canton, 2023. We got Jews and Gentiles, mysteries and ministries and Confidence and boldness and angels and what do we do with all this? Here's what I want us to see this morning. If we insist that people become like us before they come to Jesus, we have lost the gospel. If we insist that people become like us before they come to Jesus, we have lost the gospel. I think in just so many ways, we almost unconsciously create false barriers between people and Jesus. The way other people dress, the way they talk, the way they worship, the way they vote. (laughs) Ethnic divides, political divides, cultural divides, personality clashes. In a world obsessed with building walls, the gospel is a giant, unstoppable bulldozer. (laughs) Pushing further. If you're a political conservative who really struggles to worship Jesus alongside a political liberal, you may not understand the gospel. If you're a political liberal who struggles to worship Jesus alongside a political conservative, you may not understand the gospel. Is that too strong? I don't think so. As strong as that might sound, that's nowhere near as strong as what Paul's talking about here. Jews and Gentiles have the same Savior? Are you kidding me? Paul, you keep talking like that. You're going to make enemies on both sides. Slow your roll, dude. Settle down. And Paul goes, I know why those people don't hang out with those people. That makes sense. That's easily explained. I know why that group doesn't like that group. I can explain that. But you know what I can't explain? The kind of gospel that reduces both causes to whispers and dust. You know what else I can't explain? The kind of gospel that kills every other earthly identity so people can exchange them for heavenly identities. You know what I can't explain? When people who the world says should work against each other actually work for each other, lean in, love each other with real, genuine, honest, sincere, selfless love because they've both been forever changed by the great Savior. That doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? It's super strange. That's not how the world works. Exactly. (laughs) When you find your mouth hanging open at the wonder of the gospel, you're almost there. A gospel that I can easily understand comes from a God that is too small to really worship. A gospel that makes sense to me is a God too small for me. A curious, but for now, still watching world. For now, still watching. 
standing outside in the cold darkness, should see the warm light of the gospel pouring out of the windows of our lives and curiously coming close. They should peer in the windows and go, how are those people together? Look at how they love each other. Look at how they give to each other. Look at their depth. Look at their joy. Either they're all absolutely crazy or something absolutely crazy is going on. And Paul leans in and he goes, I know. I don't get it either. If you think like the world, this is absolutely bonkers. The narrative does not fit, so let me get you a better narrative. Natural enemies united by the blood of Christ. That's the point. That's the mystery that changes the world. That's what we're shooting for. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds impossible. I know it's weird, but Jesus does weird stuff. Jesus turns enemies in this world into not just friends. Jesus goes further. He makes them family. (laughs) Because here's the bigger, better, beautiful story. As different as these people are horizontally, they are nowhere near as different as we all are from God vertically. And if you buy the idea that God is into this kind of reconciliation, think what he can do about this kind of reconciliation. I know it doesn't make any kind of sense. You want in? A gospel that I can easily understand is a God that's too small to worship. But a gospel that makes my, ho- my mouth just hang open in wonder, I can get behind that. When did we get over grace? <laughs> like, when did, when did we stop going, oh. when did we get so cynical? When did all this become just like a yawn for so many Christians? It could be that the world isn't amazed by grace because we're not amazed by grace. And so many Christians have gone into the echo chamber of our world, parroting back the familiar narratives, and so we don't have anything new to add to the cultural conversation anymore. We have nothing new to add. We have no new words. We have no corrective vision. We have no life-changing truth that stops the world in the tracks. All we have is the same old tired cliches, recycled, just like everybody else. I'm genuinely worried that we've become content offering a hungry, starving world just dry husks rather than like nourishing kernel of gospel truth. And then we wonder why the church is being swept to the periphery of our culture. We've just lost the mystery, and I think that's sad. So what does wonder sound like? Like wonder and mystery. I don't know. I think it's probably different for every person. I like Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley said it like this. He said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so rare, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. And so bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That's how he said it, and I like it. 
Has it been a while since you felt that way, though, right? I get it. It's easy. So how do you get there? How do you recapture some of this mystery and this wonder that makes you go, ah? Let me reach all the way back to Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 2 that fueled the words in Ephesians chapter 3. Three things. Who were you before Christ? And some of you in the room, some of you watching online, don't know that yet because you think you're pretty good. No, you weren't. (laughs) Neither was I. No, you weren't. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 have led us to this point. No, you weren't. You're an object of wrath. That's who you were before Christ. But you got to sit with that for a little bit. And then, how did Jesus happen to you? I don't think he knocked you off your horse while you were walking down the road or knocked you out of a car while you were driving down Main Street like it happened for Paul. How did Jesus happen to you? How did you meet him? What was that like? Some of you haven't had that moment yet, and so today could be the day. Why not? And then the third question to sit with is, well, what's he doing in your life right now? What difference is he even making? The band is going to come on in just a minute. And I'm going to invite you to join me in something else. Um, Here's something I'm doing. And I want you to join me in it. Doesn't have to be right now, maybe sometime this week. Um, I'm starting to pray a little bit more for revival. And not, I guess in one sense, like I've always kind of prayed for it. Like, God, it would be great if you. But like actually starting to beg God, move. God, amaze us again. Please show us your gospel in full clarity so we can't avoid it. Just put it in front of our faces so that nothing else makes any sense. Would you pray like that? I just kind of want to be swept up into a gospel mystery that I can't understand. And I want our church to be in that and I want our city to be in that and maybe our world. And so the band is going to play this song and um, it's a great title. It says, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Perfect. So we don't do this a lot. Um, I didn't tell them I was going to do this, but I'm going to ask you if, if you're going, Lord, I just, I want you to wake me up. I want you to amaze me. Take me back to that place. And maybe you have the words of David where he says, unite my heart, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. If that's you and while this song is playing, you got a couple things you can do. You can come up here and just bow at the altar. Just a time with you and God. I, I think sometimes the physical is a catalyst for the spiritual. And no one's gonna bug you. No one's gonna think you're weird. Just a time for you and the Lord. Just say, Lord, I, I just wanna put myself before you and I wanna ask you to amaze me. Maybe you need to talk to somebody today and you're feeling a pinch in your life. We're gonna have people back at these red tables in the corner who would love to pray with you. And so during this song, if you need to move, this is a good chance for you to do it. Let me pray. Father, we say thank you for your world. That this world is yours. You hold it in your hand. It is never outside of your control. And so Father, you've given us the gospel. You sent your son on a cross that we could be free, that our lives could be changed. So Lord, move in these moments. We love you, Lord. We say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. 
Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.